Welcome to Power Players by Orgis, critical thinking to deliver the promise of clean energy. This program brings you leading voices in solar and energy storage and sectors impacting renewables, exploring challenges and solutions for industry growth, the true cost of operating and maintaining power plants, and system asset management considerations. My name is Josh Corbett. I welcome you to this episode hosted by Michael Iman, Managing Director of Orgis Services. Okay, today on Power Players, we've got Kevin Christie, Head of Innovation and Operational Excellence from LightSource BP. Kevin is a veteran renewable energy industry executive since 2002. And I think, and I would like to say a friend and, and someone that I enjoy talking to and with really, really deep knowledge. Uh, Kevin, I follow you across LinkedIn and a lot of the stuff you put out because you always say really interesting things that I find you know, really valuable. And I'm hoping today is no exception. Currently, the head of innovation and operational excellence Americas for LightSource BP, and, I, and in a minute, I'd love for you to tell me what that means. But to give everybody a sense of of you know who you are, who hasn't had the pleasure to really know you, <clears throat> I understand you're focused on innovation-driven operational excellence and improvements, like mitigating risks for LightSource BP's investments, sort of in renewables uh, here uh, in the Americas. You. I think you you co-founded the utility scale PV developer Axio Power in 2007, and then successfully sold to Sun Edison in 2011. And then while you were at Sun Edison, you managed the North American utility scale uh, development portfolio, as I understand it, and served as general manager of North America for Sun, Sun Edison's global services O&M and asset management team. You also served on the Advanced Solutions Energy Storage Team, delivering those next generation commercial applications, you know, battery storage and other types of technologies. And then finally, as the COO of Sun Edison's North America Utility Team. And then following Sun Edison with LightSource, you were the COO for LightSource for some time as well, as I recall, before BP made the investment and now have transitioned into this new role. So, you know, welcome to Power Players, Kevin. It is a real pleasure to have you today, and uh, I'm excited to to see you here on the program. Can you tell me a little bit about your current role and 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 what that what that means for LightSource? Uh, sure, happy to. But first of all, Mike, you know, thanks for having me today. Uh, I really appreciate that you had the notion to start this podcast, and that Orgis has been supportive. And I've listened to some of the content. And I think it's uh, it's well done. So uh, Thank honored. You. Thank you. We've got great people making sure I don't screw it up too bad. So I, okay. I appreciate that. So, yeah, so guys tell like us you about. I need the help. Yeah, so, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so <laughs> tell us about role. tell us about your role. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I'll I'll just talk about uh, the the evolution of uh, light source in the U.S. So. Um, I came in basically at the tail end of the Sun Edison bankruptcy and uh, helped LightSource spin up uh, a U.S. business. Uh, and then in uh, 20, basically at the end of 2018, uh, Kevin Smith, our, our current U.S. CEO, uh, came into the business and we just continued to grow and uh, add people. And the, the role that I was in um, it just wasn't necessarily the best fit for for me uh, and what I do. So, in October of last year, uh, this role was created uh, for me specifically uh, in order to to take forward some of the innovation projects that I'd already been working on. But more to the point, to free me up 
to spend most of my time and, uh, on these types of projects, uh, focusing both on deploying new technologies in, in, uh, into solar plants, old technologies in a different way, or, or even just figuring out a, a more efficient or, or you know, better outcome way of doing things. And that's sort of where the operational excellence piece comes in. Got it. <clears throat> Look, you're a perfect guy for the job, I think. So they've they've got the right people in the right spot here. Uh, but you know, we're not we're not here to to talk about innovation across the industry today. Uh, we can only handle you know we got to take chunks in 30, 30 to forty minute chunks here. So today, we're here to talk about hail, right? So hail is one of those risks that I think you know five six years ago people didn't really talk much about as solar has penetrated into the South Central and Southeastern markets where you've got, you know, these continental air masses meeting these maritime air masses. You've got, you've got cold and dry meeting warm and hot, and that creates convection. And suddenly the solar industry in these large facilities are exposed to weather phenomenon that can be quite destructive. And, with, and for which we don't have a lot of history on how to manage. And hail is one of those that particularly here in Texas, uh you know where where i'm from and where i live today um is a real risk to these plants and so you guys have some pretty big plants in texas i know you've got a number uh more large plants that are that are scheduled uh for this region and and this has been an area that you've been spending some time and light source has been spending some time so talk to me a little bit about you know the focus on hail and sort of why you're approaching it and 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 how you're looking at it yeah, sure. So uh, this kind of landed on on my radar back in April of 2020 when we received uh, our first renewal on our uh, impact project northeast of, of Dallas, it's a 260 kilo, uh, megawatt project. And uh, for the first time, what we were seeing, uh, in, instead of the typical insurance product that was prevalent prior to that, which was an all-risk policy, right? Yeah. So it was the developers lining everything up for finance, you get um, policy terms from a reputable carrier, uh, an insurance consultant reviews it and signs off and says, yeah, yeah sure. this project has a good insurance plan, uh, but it covered all risks. So you had one deductible, one coverage limit. Uh, and as long as it was a covered event, you know, they'd all be treated the same. But what fundamentally changed uh, in 2020 is coming out of a number of natural catastrophe events yeah, in 2018, yeah. 2019, not just hail, but flood and fire uh, experiences on solar plants were all uh, not great that in 2018, 2019. So and insurance uh, costs were going up in that period, like 20, 25% per year, as I recall. It yeah, was so massive. So, yeah, so we're in what uh, folks in the industry call a hard market. And mm -hmm. what that's looked like for uh, hail coverage in particular is uh, separate deductibles, and separate coverage limits. So whatever your deductible is for your all-risk policy, your hail deductible is probably higher than that, and your coverage limit is probably lower than what it is in the um, in the all-risk portion of the policy. Yeah. So effectively, you're you're paying more for less coverage, and that's just one of the ways in which uh, insurers are trying to rebalance the risk, right? Both through premiums and through more restrictive terms. So we've just been living with that. We're now in, I think, our uh, third turn uh, of this. And, and in each turn, deductibles go up, 
coverage limits come down, right? So the, the market is still turning the, uh, the ratchet on that. And given that this year's hail experience has not been a great one, uh, largely driven by West Texas, uh, I just expect that'll continue. Uh, and, and, and it will just continue to continue, I guess, until uh, we're able to, as an industry, including our insurance carriers, are able to wrap our head around this and say, we understand this risk. We understand how to mitigate it so that we know that what's left is whatever sort of makes it through the mitigation defense. That's a very different risk proposition from uh, how it's looked at right now. So my hope is that we can reach a point where this is all just sort of dealt with uh, in the open with data and knowledge, as opposed to you know using commercial property loss models and nobody really understanding like the feedback that we got on our program from insurers was, you know, show us two or three years of preventing hail damage and, you know, then we'll give you credit as opposed to just being able to look at the process and procedure and go, you have a mitigation strategy in place, you know, that reduces our risk. And we recognize that and here's your lower premium, your lower deductible, your higher coverage limit. We're still working towards that and it might it might take a bit. Yeah. Now, if I'd known, Kevin, that you were going to pick on Texas specifically, I don't know if I would have done this. I mean, that's not really fair as a Texan. I mean, come on. Hell can happen anywhere, right? It, that it said, can, yeah. yeah, right? That said, unfortunately, the reality is I remember as a kid seeing hail the size of my fist, you know, coming down and punching holes through roofs. And now yeah. we're covering parts of Texas with glass. And yeah. and and not just Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, you know, all the maritime regions. Uh, by maritime, I mean coastal Texas. Yes, is coastal. We've got a large coastline on the Gulf of Mexico. And so that feeds energy into those systems. I think a lot of people don't realize, I think, you know, if you if you cut a piece of hail in half, you'll see like ring growth rings like a tree because you have to have that vertical convection where these what starts off as a small piece of frozen rain or a dust particle that is then cycled up and down in the vertical column and layers of ice are frozen more water then it fall it gets heavy it falls out more water gets accreted then it gets uplifted again and it freezes and it just goes through that and gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it's so heavy <clears throat> that the wind in that supercell is no longer sufficient to hold it up and it literally falls out right and that's it, or it shoots out to one side. And so hail is very much, although it can happen anywhere, and although I don't want to malign my birth state, uh, Texas is someplace where, where it happens with some degree of statistical significance. And because of the, the forces at play and with global warming, there's more and more energy in the environment, which means more and more heat energy, more and more convection, and you're gonna have more and more of these events in places where we haven't really seen it in the past. <clears throat> Does When you're dealing with insurers though, and you're looking at sites, are they discriminating between different geographies and different risks relative to this, or are they looking at it as a, a, a across everything? Uh, yeah, the, there is a geographic component to it. Uh, I'm not sure how all of them do it, but I suspect it's uh, looking at risk maps, right? So uh, different projects live in different zones from a hail risk perspective. You know, a, a Munich Re might put out, you know, a map set based upon that. Um, 
but uh, what what we've found, because we we do have tools that enable us to go into the historical um, hailstorms, uh, the last ten years or so with uh, the dual mode Doppler radar. Um, prior yeah. to that point, it's mostly spotter reports and you know uh, government weather stations, uh, and you can actually see when and where uh, hailstones hit relative to a location on your site. So. We'll plug our site information in. It'll show one, three, and ten mile radiuses and what the largest hailstone is that hit in that radius on that date. So uh, we're able to build, uh, you know, a ten plus year uh, hail history, including the size of the largest of the size of the hail that hit, according to the radar record anyway. And what we're seeing is that even projects and locations that you might not think. Uh, could potentially have damaging hail, like Southern Pennsylvania, where this project behind me is located. Uh, in 2012 or so, uh, this valley, basically the Chambersburg, Pennsylvania area, uh, received hailstones of over three inches. Yeah, uh, it was very unusual, but it does happen. And so the long and the short uh, of the implication of that for us is we needed to design a program that would cover 100% of our sites, regardless of where they're located. In Are the you are you able to get enough information on all sites? Because the type of Doppler radar you're talking about is typically associated with metropolitan areas where you've got large, <clears throat> excuse me, large weather installations. Certainly there's overhead satellite resources, but they're they're not as detailed because you're, you know, one, the power requirements and, and two, just because you're looking down versus, you know, sideways where you're able to characterize vertically these storms in a much more effective way. And so do you get enough information to really when you're looking at these rural environments, which, you know, you know, as well as I do, you guys do large scale utility solar, thousands and thousands of acres, and it's not available in metropolitan Denver, you know, it's or, or Dallas, it's out in the hinterland. So are you able to characterize it accurately, given those limitations? Well, you know, well, en enough to have a sense of whether or not it's it's a risk for that particular area, but it, it, in a way, like I said, it, it almost doesn't matter because we implement this program for 100% of our sites in construction and in, and in operations. So are there are, are there resources that you guys use to characterize those risks that other people can also use that are out there, whether they're NOAA or, or whatever? I mean, sure. Where, I actually, where's that information? I, I, yeah, I'm happy to walk you through some of the the tools that we use. So um, first of all. So how we deal with this issue is all about the, the nature and, and design of our hail mitigation programming. Uh, you know, it's widely accepted knowledge in the industry right now that the way that you mitigate from hail, for hail is you tilt your modules to the maximum tilt that they'll go to. Uh, and, you know, you basically have to pick your poison, whether it's east or west. And some manufacturers have some, you know, guidance on how to deal with that. Others don't care. You can do it east or west. Um, but, you know, once you, you pick your poison, the strike force is just going to be a function of the, uh, you know, one half mass times velocity squared angle of, of the hailstone coming down to, to hit your module, right? And it's going to be a combination of how much force gets absorbed by the module versus how much gets deflected off of it. And, and the higher the angle, hopefully, uh, you know, if the hailstone's coming straight down, then you'll deflect up to two thirds uh, of the energy in that hailstone. Um, now, wind can complicate things because wind can change the you know incoming direction of hailstones. But 
you know, really going into full tilt really is the sort of accepted uh, way of mitigating this risk. It's kind of the, the best that you can do. So, so then the question becomes, how do you decide when to do that? And and that's where the tools get come into place. And I'm I'm happy to walk you through that. Yeah. So before we go to the the when and how to trigger it, some questions on, you know, do all the trackers provide the same amount of of tilt angle capability? I, I don't think so. Nope. So what have you nope. guys seen out there as as some of the tracker technologies that are good and, and maybe some that are bad. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here. Maybe just talk about the good. Yeah. yeah so, uh, <laughs> well, we, we only have ATI next tracker in our US fleet. And, and so, I, you know, we, we've answered all the questions uh, with those guys. Uh, ATI can go plus or minus 52 degrees. Uh, next tracker can go plus or minus 50 or 60, depending upon the, the structure. The so not so far off. No, not far off at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, you, you mentioned pick your poison as well. Given that you said you're going to go to the max either east or west, and it's a bit of a, a coin toss, I think, you know, given how these storms develop, what do you mean by pick your poison? I, mean, I think I know what you mean, but like, what does it mean yeah. to everybody else? Well, you, you're either going minus to the east or plus to the west, right? And and so your, your hail stow protocol will include the degree of tilt plus or minus, right? Yeah. Uh, no. Are there other risks though that you're dealing with at the same time as the hail that that it matters? Well, you, you, there's always you know concern over uh, wind, right? Because often coincident with these thunderstorms are high wind events. Yes. Uh, and and so the concern is if you are tilted, say, into uh, the wind, then the hailstones instead of striking, you know, at, at at, at, at this degree of incident angle, the wind can actually change. I'm sorry, I'm I'm like on a podcast using my hands and, and no, it's, it's okay. We do video too. I mean, just yeah. <laughs> just explain what you're doing with your hands for the people. That so are uh, to explain to the listeners, <laughs> uh, imagine you've got a, a solar module that's tilted at 50 degrees, and uh, the wind is blowing a two and a half inch hailstone uh, at like 40 miles an hour, which really means it's basically subtracting 20 degrees from that tilt that you've got. So instead of striking at 60 degrees and shedding two thirds of its force, it'll strike at 40 degrees and shed something less than, you know, two thirds of, of the force. That's, like the concern. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the concern <clears throat> is that the, the wind could actually blow the hailstones directly into the modules, but there's concerns the opposite as well. And that if you, if the modules are, have their backs to the wind effectively, then uh, the rear side frame can be like a can effectively capture the wind instead of letting it blow off like the front glass does, and that would increase the amount of force uh, on the back of that module. And you could potentially, you know, blow clips or blow the module, uh, the front glass out of the frame. We haven't had anything like that happen, but those yeah. are just there's concerns that are expressed about both, you know, outcomes. Yeah, so it's, it's, you and I, it's interesting like, to me, like. Oftentimes, during a developing storm or a mature mature storm, there's enough force to keep these things aloft. And when the storm collapses, is when is when you get heavy rains. You you get hail that basically comes out of that collapsing structure, which can go up to fifty thousand feet. Yeah. And but as also part of that collapsing structure, you get columns of wind that flow down to the bottom in microbursts, and then and then go out laterally on a 360 degrees 
or you know sometimes in a more predominant wind direction depending on the direction of the aloft winds but yeah. <clears throat> by going to 50 degrees aren't you creating a sail in the very event where you've got now you've got high winds that are often associated like how do you pick between those risks and how does insurance look at you making that choice when you go to make a claim yeah so I, i'm not going to say so for, we've had a discussion before about wind dynamics during an yeah. oil storm and i think it's really important to maybe take a minute and talk about that because it's never as simple as the wind comes from this direction no throughout <laughs> the duration of that right yeah yeah. Um, both because where your site is relative to that center point of updraft and downdraft, that'll dictate, you know, what, what direction the wind is hitting the site and, you know, where it is in the updraft and downdraft, you know, activity. So if there's a, a thunderstorm headed straight for your site and it's in updraft mode, then effectively the wind is being sucked across your site towards that updraft, right? Yeah. Uh, as soon as the downdraft starts, that pressure reverses, and now yeah. you've got wind coming out from the center of the uh, the downdraft. And so, dependent upon whether you're, where your site is relative to that, you know, and then and then you have the convective nature of the storms as well. They they swirl. So what we've seen is we've we've just taken the 15 minute intervals where a hailstorm or a thunderstorm is passing over or near our site, and we'll just chart out the wind speed and direction during that event. And uh, what we find is the wind flips around to both sides of the compass and points in between throughout that 15 minute event, right? Yep. So you can't successfully decide that you're going to point your array in this location that's going to minimize the wind element uh, of what can happen to, uh, to your array. Just because it's so dynamic, you can't predict it. So what and I haven't seen this yet, and 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 maybe you have. So I'll I'll ask a a question that's a little bit forward thinking. <clears throat> you've got insurance for hail. You've got insurance for wind. You've got different stow angles for wind events as versus hail. The problem is they happen at the same time, and mm -hmm. and in varying degrees. Your hail changes throughout the maturity cycle of a storm. Your wind direction changes. Um, you get funneling effects from terrain, like in the in the that you like you see from behind or from buildings or even trees, so that you can get funneling that amplifies or or diffuses wind at different phases. And so, you know, particularly in areas like the southeast where you have more hilly terrain, right? And so, how do you deal with an insurance claim where you go to a hail stow? And then your site gets torn up by a microburst that came from the wrong direction and your insurance comes back and says, well, we would have covered it, except it wasn't in Windstow. And this is a wind event because wind is what tore this up. And you say, yeah, but we were prepping for hail. And they'll say, well, but there wasn't any hail. But there's no way for you to know that at the time. I just see this catch 22 playing out. Do you have experience with that? Have you had these conversations? Because I, I haven't as of yet, but I know they're coming. Yeah, uh, no, we haven't had the conversation. First of all, we, we haven't actually been, and none of our sites have been damaged over the last two years uh, from a hail event. Uh, knock on wood, but you know we're always ready. I, just in the last uh, year and a couple of months, we've dispatched uh, projects almost seventy times, seventy different dispatch events. So, uh, and, and basically, the reason for that is because our pro there, there's a few design considerations in our program. 
One is it has to cover 100% of our projects from in construction through to uh, through to operations, and it has to have what we call zero false negatives, meaning you can't have uh, damaging hail arrive at any of our sites where we are not already in stow mode when the hail the damaging hail arrives. Right. That's what I mean by zero. That false by itself negatives. is a tough is a tough thing to do. Yeah, which is why we actually have three lines of uh, of defense, which I can uh, talk about in a bit. But the, yeah, the, the whole point here, Mike, is just to make sure that we have a program that has, I'll kind of characterize it like we do with uh, uptime for uh, data centers, right? You're into the nines. So 99 point, you know, that's really what we're, we're driving towards. Uh, and you kind of have to. I mean, I think we have to as an industry because we're, the scale at which we're already operating is daunting. Yes, that's going to be multiplied, you know, by by factors of ten, probably by the you know by the time you and I um, are uh, are done on this earth. So that really means we have to have something that is repeatable, scalable, reliable. So totally agree. I'm looking forward to that conversation with insurance. It's going to happen eventually, and and I'm and I'm probably going to be sitting here thinking like. I knew this was going to happen, and this is just as ridiculous and hard to navigate as I thought it was going to be. We'll put that aside for a moment, that future tragic conversation, which I think we'll probably all have from time to time. Let's talk a little bit. Of, you guys have done a lot with your programs, three-layer defense that you referred to, and I think a lot of us can learn a lot from that. Can you talk a little bit about your program? Like, what did you put in place? Why? What are those three layers? How can people put in programs you, you know, for their for their own companies that that really work and take advantage of of what we know today. Yeah, well, I think first of all, there are some uh, tools and services available today that um, we, we didn't have access to a couple of years ago, uh, and, and so we can do more now than you know initially we did. But what we did initially is we took some commercially available uh, tools, including you know first and foremost the, the Storm Prediction Center. Uh, has a website that has all of the day's uh, concerns in it. And uh, you can pick the convective outlook. Uh, it's called the day one convective outlook. And this is what talks about the National Weather Service's view on um, severe thunderstorm risk across the, the United States. And you can filter that by hail risk uh, in that tool. Really? And I didn't know you could do that. That's really yeah. interesting. You can, you can filter I'm, down to hail risk. I'm a bit it's of a weather button. nerd and I'm learning things from you. This is fantastic. <laughs> it's it's a nice service. It's a really nice service. So you can you can filter down to, to hail and it will show you uh, a risk banding uh, of whatever areas around the country where they think there's a, a risk of significant hail, like one one inch or larger is the, is the criteria. And the, the risk bands start at 5%. Uh, the next wristband is 50, 15%, and then it goes to 30, 45, and and uh, and above. But uh, generally speaking, what we found is that that 15% wristband tends to be where the potentially damaging hailstorms arrive, basically 15% or above. Yeah. Uh, but you know, because none of this is a science, uh, sometimes some of the those severe hailstorms happen within a 5% band close to a 15% band. So we put a buffer around that. And basically within 25 miles of a risk band of 15% or higher, 
uh, we'll be looking at the hourly weather forecast to see when the thunderstorms are expected to start and when they're expected to end. Uh, and then we put an hour buffer uh, on either side and we create a dispatch order that basically says at this time, put these trackers into this degree of stow uh, until this time and then return to normal operations. Yeah. So that that's how we, you know, structure one of these dispatch orders. And then it goes to the O&M Providers Operations Center. We follow up with a phone call. They do the dispatch. They let us know if they're having any issues with trackers and what they're doing about it. Uh, and then, you know, otherwise we won't hear from them again until we go into like return to normal operations. And they'll say as of such and such time, we've returned the trackers to normal operations. So it's a very you know, it, it's a well-worn path. Um, you know, we, we've done it a number of times with uh, all of our O&M providers, so it's it's understood. The, the, the yeah. program is understood. Um, do you, do you, you have any challenges tools? at times with those O&M providers? I know, you know, once you put a tracker into stow, particularly if you've had wind events or things like that, from an operational perspective, um, I'm concerned about moving those trackers until I get some people out there to look at them to make sure nothing is blown in underneath them. I'm not going to warp or 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 tear anything up by moving them again after the fact, but I can't get people in the field until I know it's safe to be in the field. And and with these storms, you get lightning, you get, you know, hail in and of itself is a hazard, you know, and a hard hat won't do it. You know, I certainly, I certainly, you know, most of our heads are not designed to take the you know, oh, yeah. baseball size hail falling out of the sky. Oh, yeah. And so, and so there is, I mean, do you guys deal with some delays at times just to make sure that you can make safe the site and and you can return it without doing any harm or have you seen that so we're so right now we're working uh with our O&M providers on uh if so I'll I'll back up a little bit we've completed the coding that we need to do to actually send commands directly to trackers from our own back end yeah. uh, what we call auto stow Right, so um, we're scheduling tests for for this feature over the next couple of weeks at a next tracker site and ATI site. Just to make sure that please make sure hands goes. and everything are clear. Before yeah, so so what what <clears throat> we're discussing is how do we work with the uh, technicians in the field if if it's yeah. a time of day where you'd expect to have technicians there, uh, and how do we make sure that that they're safe? And and uh, I can't say that we've locked in on the method but certainly one way that we could do that is when we send the alert to uh the operations center that we want to go into stow so maybe we put a time buffer on there and that gives them time to work through whatever tools they use to provide uh warnings to their staff be it text messages or if they have their um, ticketing app that where they're able to push safety notices it, it's really up to them to let us know what considerations we need to build into it so that their staff can be safe the way that they operate. So from our perspective, we're saying we're committed to you know being a safe partner with you on this. Let's just talk about exactly how we do that um, for, for your crews. Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. I, you know, um, there's a lot of risks associated with these storms. Hail is the only one. You know, wind can blow materials not just around the site, but from adjacent areas, limbs. You know, if if people have water panels towers. sitting out, water towers. Yeah. So, you know, it's really important to make sure that people are clear, they're safe before you start moving stuff around. And and I want everybody as they take this and implement their programs to you know really make sure that they're thinking about those people in the field. Um. Well, talk to me a little bit more about like how you guys 
you know, what you've seen as results of implementing this. Has there been a benefit? Have the insurance companies taken a different view of you as a result? I mean, well, it, what's it, been the again, outcome? We're, we're still waiting to, to see it in the numbers, but uh, the feedback that we've gotten. So, so we've been talking directly to some of the, the largest insurers about this program. And, and of course, because they're insuring solar assets, they're out there looking at, you know, other folks in the industry and how they approach it. And um, trust me, Mike, this is not like a horn tooting exercise or anything because we have nothing to sell. Toot your right? horn. That's why you're here. We're here to hear about your expertise. Yeah, so, so what they say is that this is, <clears throat> is sort of the gold standard with respect to making sure that, you know, the sites are in mitigation mode when a hailstorm comes because that's that's the money, right? It's just making sure that you can do that. And, and so the approach that we've taken to make sure that we do that uh, is, you know, in their characterization, sort of front of the stack. So, um, but but how we do that, and I think probably what the, the most characteristic difference is, is we do have human beings looking at the weather every day. Yes. Uh, we, don't, we don't operate uh, a 24-7 operations center here in the U.S., so you really just need uh, one person with one person backing them up, looking at the uh, Storm Prediction Center's website once a day and seeing what the risk bands are, right? And if it is looking like a risky day, then, you know, the, and I, I have monitored the weather for the last couple of years for these projects, so I can just describe what I would do, right? So if I see that it's a higher risk day, then I'm gonna be looking at that uh, map that the SPC pushes out every time they update it, which is typically about every four hours or so. Yeah. Do you because, guys you know, have the risk do change? They say shift around, and we look Absolutely. at the hourly forecasts all throughout the day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and the surface progs change o over time. Those weather, you know, a lot of people aren't used to looking at those. We do have a, an operations center here. We keep, you know, moving maps up that look at the weather and, and around all those radar sites and everything all across the country. Wind, and we try to stay ahead of it. That said, I do think that you guys are well ahead of the industry curve, and you know, to avoid the inevitable barrage of of emails to your inbox with all the subject line hail in big letters, <laughs> are there is there a are there resources or references or something that that we can post when we post this so that people have links they can download and they're not sort of barraging LightSource VP you or your or your managers. Is there something yeah, well, we can do to provide resources on programs? Something you know, white paper or anything. Right, so I uh, actually had a, an article uh, run in uh, PV Tech. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to say it was the summer of last year that uh, walked walked everybody through uh, our hail mitigation approach, at least as it as it was, you know, this point last year. Uh, the only thing that's changed from that to to this year is, I think last uh, last year I was mentioning, you know, that we're looking at developing. Um, automatic stow capabilities. Well, right now we have them and we're just putting them into test. Uh, and then after they've been tested for each site, we'll put them into production. Uh, and, and the way that we'll do that is, I think, just one of the other distinguishing um, elements of the, the program, at least in terms of, you know, what, what I hear that's out there in the industry, is uh, we have the in-person monitoring 365 days a year um, by at least two light source BP staffers on any given day, that doesn't change. Uh, but what what we're, we're we have worked to implement with this auto stow is to provide the means to back those 
people up. And the, there's two layers of defense that we back up the people layer. The first one is we have uh, a third party weather service that has an algorithm that uh, has been continually refined that basically plots out a thunderstorm's path. What, what service um, is that exactly? Uh, this this one is called DTN. Uh, DTN, Delta Tango November. Delta Tango November. They're, yeah. uh, I think, the oldest commercial weather provider uh, in the U.S. Um, but there's uh, another, you know, very uh, popular algorithm provider out there is NG Maps, uh, I-N-D-J-I, I, I believe is how that's spelled. Yeah. Uh, we've been looking into them for a while. So, uh, and, and Anything Weather is another uh, outfit that has been developing uh, hail algorithms uh, as well. And so just think about, you know, that layer, you're, you're getting a layer of third-party intelligence uh, that basically gives you um, a better indication than a National Weather Service severe thunderstorm warning. And I can talk about what those are uh, in a yeah. second, but this yeah. is sort of in between, you know, having people physically looking at it. Now you've got a computer running an algorithm that's looking for your problem. That's the second layer of defense. And then the third layer of defense is the National Weather Service has the severe thunderstorm warning and the way that yeah. they issue it <clears throat> is they put a polygon on a map. And you know if your project is inside that polygon, uh, well, so we, we have it set up so that uh, we get that alert uh, on any of our projects. So we're getting um, the the DTN, it's called Storm Corridor uh, alert that basically is forecasting hail, um, a, a potentially hail generating storm headed towards one of our sites. Uh, and our system is able to pick that up, just basically maps coordinates. You know, they send coordinates of the, the thunderstorm we map it against coordinates of our sites and you know act accordingly. So uh, what we have, what we'll be able to implement over the next month or so, uh, is to have those last two triggers be dealt with through AutoStow, which is kind of what we were talking about before. And that's where our back end would actually, on its own initiative, stow the uh, the trackers after some appropriate safety interval. Right with with no need for human intervention, so that's when I talk about like pushing into the the nine nine. So if people miss it and the DTN storm algorithm misses it, but the National Weather Service you know catches it and you know right. plots that risk on there, then uh, then we can act based on the National Weather Service warning. The the challenge with that is just time, right? So depending upon where your project is in that polygon, like if you're sitting on the edge of the polygon, the storm's approaching, then yeah. you effectively could get zero uh, warning. Um, the most that you'd get is somewhere in between 30 to 60 minutes. Um, we try to target a 30 minute uh, warning just to provide uh, us opportunity to deal with things that that pop up. And I'll, I'll give you a, a kind of classic one that uh, it's one of those things like, you don't anticipate this particular failure mode, but you know this is why you design these types of programs, right? Uh, is we had a project that we had already tested remote stow capability on. This is not auto stow, but like remote yeah. stow, so yeah. that the operations center could log in, dispatch. Yeah, we, the we have the capability of doing. You that have the capability sure. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and and so uh, under this program, we basically ask them to do that deployment uh, and then they do it. And, and so, so it's all personal interaction, right? So we just want to build those additional layers of if the people don't catch it, we've got, you know, two more tripwires uh, in which it could get caught uh, and that collectively 
um, should get you get us into the 99% plus um, likelihood that we're going to be in hail stove, potentially damaging hailstorm hits. Got it. So let me summarize this to make sure I heard this correctly. To make sure you know, as the dumbest guy on this call, I need to I'll, I'll boil it down too. So there's <clears throat> first you have people looking at it and sort of you know looking at those 24-hour, 48-hour progs and those and those products from the third-party companies and saying, look, we need to worry about these. Then you have an automated system that is taking the weather data and and in real time updating what you're expecting and then finally the third layer is okay everything else failed weather's developing in a way that we weren't expecting <clears throat> but the national weather service has put out this this uh we used to call them a uh, willy willies warning centers warning areas um i don't know if that's a term outside of aviation but probably willy willies is what we call them but these warning areas and then if you're anywhere near that you try to look for 30 minutes ahead at which point in time you alert your operators and they go with what I'm going to call a clear and stow, meaning you got to clear the people, right? <clears throat> and then go to a stow. You don't want to just go to an auto stow without clearing the people because if sure. somebody's got their fingers in there or if they're underneath, you, you know, you're going to cause some issues. So does that, did I say that right? Or did I get no, that right? Sorry. It's safety first, right? So it's the, you know, and it all comes down to program design, right? Like you have to design for safety. And so, um, because one safety solution might not work the same for different uh, O&M providers. Uh, we're, we're literally working with each one with whom we have a relationship to define what a safe auto stow looks like. Yeah, well, and I'm going to do one plug and then we got to wrap up because we're getting close to the end here, but <clears throat> seeing more and more sites that people are developing and delivering that do not have any sort of an O&M building or, or facility on the site, when you get into these weather events and people have to get safe, there is nowhere for them to go. If you don't have something to get them out of the heat, get them out of the hail, oh, get yeah. them out of the storm, and 30 minutes may not be enough time if they don't have someplace to go to get those people safe. So I yeah. encourage people when they're looking at building these sites to make sure that they don't just think about the site, but they think about the people on those sites. Yeah, um, That's just my own personal plug. Well, I, like I, I was saying, Mike, the, the first line of defense is people. Uh, and so we're typically sending out stow orders sometimes, you know, half a day in advance of when the actual stow order goes in um, so that the, the O&M provider will know, you know, when that stow order is going to get executed and be able to coordinate with site staff. We also copy the site staff on the on the dispatch order. So uh, now we're not counting on those guys to be looking at their, the, you know, the email client on their phones. but um this again is just where it comes down to making sure that we do whatever we need to do um for our own and providers to make sure that this whole process is safe yeah do you have any final thoughts for people we're we're, we're well past our time but this was an interesting subject and i wanted yeah. to give it the time to develop and frankly we probably need to do a few more of these and talk about it a little bit more but <clears throat> any final thoughts that or takeaways that people should take at the end of this so that they they can walk away and do something you know, affected with this information? Yeah, sure. So but before I sum it all up, though, I, I do have to call you out on your your <laughs> Texas aw shucks. I don't think that anybody who's a career naval aviator is anything less than highly intelligent. So, oh, I don't know. I give you a run for your money, but I appreciate it. Anyway. <laughs> well, you would know better than I would. But in my experience, uh, you're, you're an astute observer of, uh, of events in this industry and know what you're talking about. 
So, uh, okay, so to, to put a, a bow on it, um, I, all I would say is you have to have a program that is designed to be repeatable, scalable, and reliable. Uh, and uh, we are not yet to the point where we believe that that's a fully automated process, right? Yeah. So, so we continue to have people monitoring and we'll continue to have people monitoring this work uh, unless and until we get to the point where we feel that the process that the people do can be reduced to an algorithm itself. Um, and until we get to that point, it, you know, I just don't think there's any substitute for having people directly involved in it. Um, but it, it actually doesn't take a lot of time. You know, using the one of the tools that I mentioned, just the SPC website, it's updated, you know, typically every three to four hours during one of these events. You can look at the hourly forecast and weather.com. Both of those tools are free. You can have an effective, you know, weather monitoring program with just those two things. Uh, and, and so as long as you're able to look at the, uh, the National Weather Service map and know where your projects are, you know, because yeah. obviously they don't plot that out on your map. BP does have the ability to integrate our GIS system with, you know, weather uh, system. So they have a tool called OneMap that's able to use GIS visualization so we can take our project map of the U.S. and overlay the uh, National Weather Service's risk bands so that we can, you know, see just right. an easy visual reference that, yes, our project is inside this band. That, that's that's wonderful. Also, I'd <clears throat> excuse me, I'd love to get any resources we can link to as we populate this and, and, and send this out. I'd love for there to be some links and things that that people can use to go look at data. So anything I can get from you after the yep. fact off offline, uh, yep. then we'll add that to this when we put that out and hopefully those will be resources people can use. I, I will tell you, Origis specifically, once we close this all and wrap it all up, I'm going to be having my ops guys reaching out to, to to your guys, whoever you tell me to, and seeing what we can learn and adopt. Because from what I can he what I hear, um, I, I do think that you guys have have are out ahead of the pack, and this is really valuable information and a really sort of rational way to approach. What for many is an irrational risk, this randomly occurring risk, but these things are real. And we as an industry, the power industry as a whole, have to understand what the risks are for these sites and we can't ignore them. You know, the, what happened with the Fukushima plants in Japan ultimately was, the, was an earthquake followed by a tsunami. And that was an environmental concern that had not been contemplated. And the result was disaster. And so, here in solar, we have our own things that we have to mitigate, and I think it's important to learn those lessons and to listen to the 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 thinkers and and in the industry. And Kevin, I will say, uh, you know, as far as gold standards go, you are that gold standard as far as I'm concerned. And I really appreciate you joining us today on Power Players. Thanks, Mike. It's my pleasure. Happy to come back anytime. Let's uh, let's chat on some other stuff. We're gonna do it again. This has been great. Uh, thanks for your time, and uh, we'll ha have a co another conversation soon. Perfect. Find summary thoughts on this topic and more insights into operating your clean energy assets at OrgisServices.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Power Players by Orgis, critical thinking to deliver the clean energy promise.